Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I'm here with Chris Rag, Nick Hare, and Jordan Fermanis of Aleph. And this week, we're discussing Ludovico Einaudi. Who the hell is Ludovico Einaudi? Um, as a cultural gatekeeper, you not, might know about this person. Nick. Yes, I don't well, know. I, uh, not only that, but yes, he's a composer. Okay. Um, and uh, not only that, but he appears, he's in my iPod, so he crops up occasionally. And um, he came on the other day, because I had it on like random, and, um, and I was thinking to myself, this is like surprisingly kind of bland, unchallenging, but nice. I thought, who is this? And now it turned you're talking out to, be, turned like out to yeah. be this Ludovico Einaudi. Mm. And I thought, I bet critics hate this guy. Mm. And lo and behold, sure I'm right. Yeah. Now, do you remember a, a while back we did a podcast about things that are inexplicably popular, things that are popularly hated? And we're not we're doing exactly the same. No? We're doing the opposite of that almost. Ah. So our last, the podcast we did before was about things that sort of everyone hates, but somehow still someone out there is watching them, like Mrs. Brown's Boys. Yep. Whereas this is stuff that are actually liked and considered very good mm. by, by the populace at large but detested by critics. Yep. And so into that box, we could put um, Einaudi, uh, Jack Vetriano, Thomas Kincaid, both artists who are you know, massively big sellers, but uh, loathed by critics. Mm. And I think there's, you know, there's an, any number of, of films which fall into that category as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it's an interesting phenomenon mm. because... Um, you know, often when you get this sort of situation, th these are artists who are kind of at the, at, the, at the front line of this battle between sort of elitist critics and populist sort of, um, you know, people who, who, who like something because they think it's good. And, and you, so it's almost like the, you get this kind of little culture war around these people. Um, and um, and critics are often accused of gatekeeping, mm. and I think the critics tend to see these things as sort of blandification of, of high art um, or, par or sort of pastiches uh, or hack work. So, you know, there we go. What is going on when, with these kinds of things, um, and, and is, it, is it good or bad? I mean, are the critics right? Are these people actually bad and people have just have got terrible taste? Or is, it, is something deeper going on? Yeah. Nice. We've got the reverse of this, the exact reverse, right, as well. Which what, is our, our podcast, um, which is loved by critics but but hated by the, the, by the general, general public. public. Yeah. Surely, surely yeah. we straddle both. Yeah, we're, of course we're, we do. We're yeah. broadly loved by both camps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right, Chris. You've got yeah. to, we're in the top right-hand corner. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was thinking uh, James Joyce, Ulysses, you know, right. uh, critics love it. Everyone else like might it, pretend to, but indeed. I've never bloody read the stuff. I've got yeah, the books. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, what's that all about? Um, how do we want to kick this off? Who? Where, yeah. Where, where do you see us going in this? What are we going to? What are we going to address? Well, I think if we sketch we, out the whole you, thing. You, well, I think we were going to talk about types of things that are are hated. I don't have specific examples of genres and examples yeah. from that, but I've got some sort of themes of the kinds of things that I think are are hated. So that's we'll we'll go off with that and then see where we go. Just yeah. before we do, so we'll start with you, Chris. But 
Mr. Einaldi, mm. just before, I'm just intrigued. It's piqued my curiosity. Who is he? What, I mean, I know he's a composer, but um, can you well, just he, tell me he, a little bit, bit, a bit of flesh on that? He's I'm, sort of a popular minimalist, I suppose. He's kind of like the... Uh, contemporary? He's, he's sort of Steve Reich for the man on the bus. Uh, see, I'm, you can tell that I'm I'm being I'm starting to be a snooty gatekeeper. Yeah. But um, he's uh, very inoffensive. Like that's why you couldn't hate it. Um, you know, it, it, but it's but it's it's sort of solo piano, very accessible, sort of unchallenging chord changes. Sort of a bit predictable. Sounds a bit like an AI wrote it. I, I, look, mm. I sound like I'm being mean about him, but I don't really mean to be. But do you like it? It's not. It's okay. Yeah. It's not Chopin. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, Chris. Yeah. No, I was just going to sort of say that, you know, what are what are the themes of those things? You know, Nick was talking about artists and musicians, um, you know, mentioned films. But what are the kinds of things that get critics goats? What you know, what what are the um, the, the things they particularly don't like? And we talked about blandness, but I, th I think. You know, if you look at some of the terms that are used by critics to, um, well, to criticise things in in the negative sense of criticism, mm. uh, you know, they're words like kitsch, um, words like schmaltz. Mm. Uh, you know, in poetry, you have things like doggerel. Uh, you know, to to and and so, what are those? You know, what are the characteristics of the things? Uh, you know th that are criticised with those those words, and and so I think there's a there's an element of um, well with schmaltz of over sentimentality, you know, oh. so um, a, a naked sentimentality, nothing nothing hidden about it is right out there and uh, and obvious. Um, doggerel is about yeah. What does doggerel mean? I've never quite well. It, I mean, it's 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 um, it's generally a description of of bad poetry but bad poetry in a, a particular kind of way where the rhyme is forced where the the gotcha. meter doesn't run um and the wrong words are emphasized and so on so so but there's a, sort of but an absence of <clears throat> kind of illusion and metaphor <clears throat> and being very sort of straight okay. up okay yeah, does it yeah, always yeah. just refer to poetry <clears throat> Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, you know, it's one of those words I hear all the time. Well, not all the time, but anyway, yeah, go on. But but the, so so yes. Yeah, so, so when it, whenever you've submitted a poem to, to Woman's Own, it, yeah, they exactly. Always, yeah. Even by their standards, yeah. Um, uh, sorry, Chris. And, and 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 kitsch is generally about tastelessness, and and that's probably at the essence of what critics are going after. This notion of of taste and what is what is good taste. And so I th I think there are a few things working there. One is um one is explicitness right you know not not being sophisticated in the way you deliver something here are the emotions or here is you know i, I i'm not going to dress this up in classical illusion it's just going to be you know pam Ayres talking about going to the dentist or something mm. um <laughs> uh, and um yeah. a, a, and and then there's a, a sort of an ugliness and a crassness to it as as well i think so those are the things that i think that they're you know that are particularly jarring for for critics no no artifice and what they consider to be unaesthetic um mm. i suppose so yeah i mean i i think that sounds so if i give you a list of things i think fall into this category 
I, I think we'll see that Chris's suggestion is is pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, have you got one? Yeah, no, no. What I was going to say is maybe an absent... I guess what critics are looking for is... I don't know, is a sort of... Yes, they're looking to inform, but um, I, probably what they like is something that says something about the human condition or something, some base truths or something like that. Okay, you'll the get, ways we, that you've discussed. Sure, I think Sorry, we'll get yeah, on to yeah. the idea that, you know, critics, are, are they doing something good or are they, you know, or are they doing something mm. malign? But if I, can I just, I, I just feel like I just want to, just so we agree with what we're talking okay. about. Can I just give you a list of people I think fall into this category? Yeah, so we're so in the music front, we've got um, we've got Inaudi, but I mean uh, Kenny G is another one who springs to mind, um, and uh, the, you know the phenomenon is well known phenomenon of sort of liking their early stuff. Mm. You know, uh, REM is a good example of where you know all of the critics love the early stuff, but as soon as they became well known and popular, I hate um, REM. With yeah, then you've got um, I, there's a lot of debate at the moment about a uh, a, a singer called Loive, Loive, who is um, sort of jazz, and I think jazz people are getting very riled by the fact that by the thought that she's jazz because is she is she pop pretending to be jazz those jazz people are often right oh jazz people are jazz people are terrible for this Mm. um and i say that as a jazz person Mm. uh art we've i've mentioned jack vetriano um daily telegraph called him the jeffrey archer of the art world which i think is wonderful he's the guy well, jeffrey the... archer for that yeah for that well matter, yeah. yeah exactly he's the guy who does the paintings on the beaches right yeah, jeffrey archer is the jack vetriano of the uh, of the literary <laughs> yeah. world but uh thomas kincaid is not that well known in britain but he's fabulous in america if you if they've got thomas kincaid shops and things in the u.s check it? him out he paints if you want to think think of a chocolate boxy painting yeah. like these twee little cottages and stuff um then literature so some examples I think fall into this category are J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone, I don't think most people would say she's a terrible writer, but critics think she's a bad writer. Oh, do they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the Twilight, uh, t- the Twilight um, stories, I've never read them, but one Guardian critic called the protagonist a nincompoop with the charisma of a boiled potato. And the Washington Post said it was like reading a young teenage girl's diary boosted with enough of her made-up vampire lore to give it some mild narrative and sexual tension. The New York Times described it as over-earnest, amateurish writing. And you've got, I think, uh, Dan Brown is another good example of, you know, detested by sort of literary Mm. types but but loved by the general public. And I I think really in the bottom right-hand corner, you know, uh, massive bestseller, hated by critics would be Fifty Shades of Grey, ah. E.L. James. And then I was, I was trying to think, well, does it occur in other places? Like, I, the, I, I was thinking sport, you know, Manchester United, the, the kind of the team that you support if you don't like football. Mm. I feel like they maybe occu- occupy a, an adjacent sort of niche in the world of sport. So, mm. but anyway, so do we all agree that that's a thing and we, we all know what we're talking about, right? Mm. There is a thing there that yeah, we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs> Feels like cognoscenti gatekeepery mm. stuff going on. Um, talking of the cognoscenti, uh, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, th- I, s- I thought it was interesting also to look at the role of the critic, because um, obviously criticism stretches back a long, a long way. Um, and the poet Matthew Arnold uh, said that the role of criticism is to make itself inherently valuable and to rouse men from complacency to a state of achieving perfection. I thought that's, so there's, a, there's like an ideal, I think, where criticism is meant to be as creative as the original thing that it's kind of criticizing. Um, and, it, and it should be sort of considered an art form in its own, 
in its own right here. It's a very lofty uh, kind of definition of of criticism. Um, but I think because of that is maybe why it butts up against the general public because it, if it's sort of trying to attain this kind of almost spiritual dimension, most people don't really think of art in those terms. They just, oh, that's a good book, it's a nice film or whatever. Um, so that could be one of the reasons why there's this divergence between the cr what critics like and what general audiences like as well. Uh, yeah, go with, I mean, so let's just delve into that a little bit further because I already, this is already um, eliciting quite strong emotions on me with some of the vocabulary that we're using here. Um, uh, but what's your view? The critics, you know, what are they for? Are they, I mean, yeah, are you well, able to, you know, wax lyrical on that? I think, I think critic, one of the things that I thought was that critics and audiences are using sort of different criteria to, to judge things. Um, that critics sort of base their views on technical or literary or formal elements of um, of whatever art form they're they're critiquing. While audiences evaluate it more on joy and emotional kind of engagement with with the thing. Um, yeah, the critics are like Craig Revel Hall in um, in in Strictly Come Dancing mm. because he's the one who's always saying you, your your you know whisk and chasse was terrible. Um, but you know the yeah. other, whereas the other judges are like, oh, that was really good fun, and I loved yeah. it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah really uh, interesting uh, point. Uh, 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 and I think I think that's quite um, Craig Revel Horwood is actually a, a a good nexus for what criticism is doing, which is it's sort of um, partly helping you know what's going on, right? So if it's done well, it's it's like a guide to what's going on to help you. Um, appreciate this thing better so they're giving you technical information most people don't know about ballroom dancing Craig Robert Horwood does so he you know he gives you some insights into what's going on but there's also an element which is your sort of cl classic review which is about helping you consume the thing should I go and see this film or read this book or listen to this music or go to that gallery um, you know so that so there are sort of two functions really one is to help you appreciate and one is to Filter to filter, yeah, mm. exactly. And I mean, just to say, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm quite a man of the people, right? right? I think one of the you know the elephant in the room here is the chasm that certainly lies between you know you lot over there and me over here. Is I'm quite in touch with the common people, <coughs> finger on the pulse, and I'm quite you know, anti-intellectual, right? Um, and we've um, noticed that bit. Yeah, yeah. I thought, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm all about emotions. Um, and so one of some of the things that you were saying there, Jordan, is that, you know, the public's about, you know, the enjoyment of it and, and the emotions. And give a toss to whether it's sort of saying something about the human condition or not. Um, but and tying into that, I don't want someone to tell me what to do. They can fuck off. Um, seriously, Gosh, I, strong I, reaction. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I feel really strong about this, especially like, you know, I'm a Guardian reader. That's my paper of choice but of course I've got that love-hate thing about it and nothing I can think worse than a bloody Guardian critic and I, when I read their films of the decade or the films of the year I just sit there going oh piss off you know it's yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and and the final thing is the pomposity and and this sort of frustrated artist within and that being a critic is the is is a thing in itself and an importance in that which again just makes you go oh, piss off yeah um, no anyway, that can't drive the car yeah, yeah. 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 And, sorry I, yeah go well so, so I, I'm I'm going to sort of speak in defence of the critic because I think they they do a number of interesting things, and I hadn't really considered this idea until Jordan was talking about the idea that the critic and the artist work in 
in tandem, actually without being told your stuff's not very good or it's not good in this way, you haven't got that objective opinion of what's going on to improve yourself. It's like feedback for the artist, right, in, in an ideal model. But, uh, but I also think um, there's, there's a really good quote by um, uh, Fellini, which is, um, don't tell me what I'm doing. I don't want to know, right? So uh, uh, the, the sort of sentiment behind it being the artist is a black box, right, who, who intuitively creates art, Right now, that that's not you know. I mean, there are lots of people who know their tradecraft and 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 all that kind of stuff. But this idea that actually, if if you make it overly explicit for the artist, so if the artist knows exactly why they're doing what they're doing and how they're manipulating the audience and all that kind of stuff, it maybe interferes with their creative process and makes their art less good. Right. So the artist is not necessarily the person who wants to know or does know why they're doing what they're doing right and so the critic is that that separate person their talent their niche is to actually understand and draw broader lessons and you and you get you know we talked about the the critic the classic when people say you say critic you think you'd mentioned the 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 guardian but james wood the their their former you know famous sort of literary critic writing about novels and how you should you know whether you should read this novel or not and whether it's any good there's that kind of here's a piece of here's one piece of art I'll tell you what I think about it um but then you have more sort of um you know Harold Bloom who also did that kind of you know book by book review but also wrote lots of tomes about literary criticism and what's going on across literary movements and um you know and that idea of you know how how a whole genre works, you know, a sort of broader understanding of it. And then you have people like um, Andrew Andrew Lang, who looked at folklore and uh, fairy tale and, and kind of started saying, well, this is what's going on s socially with that. So you can, you can go for, you know, you can have um, critiques from everything from an individual piece of art right up to entire movements or, you know, social sort of phenomenon. And... Really, I see the the critic as an analyst, right? That's mm. that's what that's what I feel they're they're doing. You know, you think about critical th um, critical thinking as a, as a term, that's essentially analysis, right? Yeah. So that's why I I feel you know the artist isn't well placed, even though they can create the stuff. They don't necessarily know why it's created, what it means, how it should be interpreted, and that's what a good critic should be should be doing yeah so i think there's a sense in which we're saying that um okay there's kind of the good critics are good one argument is they are discriminating between good and bad things because yep. we can't yeah right so so in in a sense it's saying you know they, they they know more so it's not about status or affiliation or any of those things that is essentially that it reminds me of something richard feynman once said where he he'd had so he's a famous physicist who'd had an, a bit of an argument with a friend of his who was an artist who said you look at a flower and you don't appreciate it. you're a scientist you just see it as a bunch of sort of chemicals and things uh, whereas i see this beautiful flower because i'm an artist and he said and he said um but the thing is that as a scientist i look at a flower and i see all these I, when i when i see the color i don't just i think about the the wavelengths and the light and i think about the, the evolutionary evolutionary process that's brought it brought it to there and all the kind of complexities of the chemicals in the in the smell and all so like he's saying 
saying that he sees a lot more than the artist because he knows a lot more about a flower. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what we're saying is that the critics can look at, Craig Revell Hallwood can look at a dance and he just sees more. I accept that. I just see people moving around. I can't tell good from bad. He is able to tell what's good and what's bad and perhaps to be able to discriminate between, whereas I just sort of think that looked a bit clumsy. He's able to, you know, identify which particular leg movement was responsible for that and so on. So I think I think that's coherent as an explanation for what critics do. Um, but, but I think there's also a sense, a, a, a thing that binds together those things which where critics aren't just saying, look, Einaudi isn't very good, but, you know, um, uh, Steve Reich is or something when they're drawing that sort of division. I, I think they do go further than that. I think there's there's a sense in which those sort of cultural um, guardians of, of what's good really almost feel threatened by or annoyed with the fact that these things are popular. So it's not it's not good enough that you can go well I'm I'm you know this is good and that's bad and you can choose to ignore me. There's a certain category of thing like Dan Brown where there it's actually a kind of almost offensive that mm. these things are popular. But I but I think actually there there is a, an argument to be made in favour of feeling that way. And I, I don't want to talk about gatekeeping yet because that's not this because I'm in favour of gatekeeping and I'll tell you why later. Mm. But this is this is more that there is a sort of pretentiousness I think to the, to things that fall into that category where they uh, where I think you know it, it's as though this is art that is coming up and saying I belong in the pantheon you know the kind of a Jack Vetriano painting almost says uh, I, I'm I'm an Edward Hopper or you know I'm I'm kind of up there in the pantheon of 20, 20th century artists the style and everything it's it's trying to get into that club and I think so so I I think there's a sense in which Bad art is, which sort of knows it's mediocre or populist. That's fine, but the critic is sort of saying, "Okay, that's good and that's bad." Now, the, the really pernicious stuff, you, the general public, you need to be aware of this. Is this artist here who's actually scamming you? Because hmm. his art is pretending to be something it isn't. You might think this is high art, but it's not. So, so I think that makes sense. It makes sense to me, not just that they're, you know, they're able to discriminate between good and bad, but that they're particularly aggrieved about a certain category of, you know, let's say mediocre art that is pretending to be uh, good. And it reminds me of this Ven Venkatesh Rao, who, who writes Ribbon Farm, where he came up with this the whole idea of premium mediocre, which is where McDonald's releases a thing which is called a sort of signature hamburger. Mm. And, it, and it's pretending to be something it isn't. And, and therefore deserves to be criticised in a different way because it's it's trying to trick you into mm. thinking it's better than it is. So anyway, I'm just so I suppose I'm I'm going a bit further and saying yeah maybe the critics are doing uh, doing they're right to be annoyed by popular mediocre things. Jordan, yeah, I think because what Nick's talking about there is the art, and I think a similar thing is happening with the criticism as well because in recent years I, I came across this concept of bad faith criticism. Um, so an example would be like clickbait, where the purpose is not to provide a genuine critique of something, but just to generate a review um, as a form of entertainment for its own sake. Um, and so obviously now social media platforms and stuff are very keen to publish this kind of content and, and disseminate it. Um, and I think that kind of drives an interesting sort of wedge between the general public and established critical opinion 
um, because it's more about kind of self-promotion and entertain uh, self-promotion and um, entertainment rather than critical rigor. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of rage it, bait. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is there other such things as critic awards? Do we know? Do critics ever sort of get nominated for stuff? I, I'm sure there are. Yeah, I, I, and, and metacriticism is a is a whole academic discipline. You know the criticism of really criticism okay. yeah. yeah do yeah. they have awards <laughs> yeah exactly um <laughs> well, uh, yeah well so that's kind of what we're doing now right yeah. Yeah. but just one thing actually what you were saying there reminds me of what's the guy who writes black mirror right charlie, charlie booker. booker there you go who i used to love reading his screen um, burn yeah his yeah. yeah when he used to in the guardian on saturday he's a classic example of a uh, of a critic um who actually was and he was quite performative and then mm. and then lo and behold turns out he is an amazing writer and can create wonderful things going on to write Black Mirror. Um, and I'm sure he's done other stuff as well. Yeah, there is a joy, though, in reading a critic who, sh who shares your snobbery about something. Mm. Uh, Giles Corrin is one I, I love, restaurant critic, and <laughs> in, in I love, mm. love, mm. love reading his, yeah. his snooty uh, put-downs of kind of regional restaurants. And, of course, there's only one thing worse than Guardian critics, which is uh, the below-the-line comments in, in the critic thing, in, you know, oh, God, it's bloody Guardian same. readers yeah. who are chipping mm. in. Mm. Okay, look, we need to move towards a conclusion. Uh, Nick, can you help us in that? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I guess that I wanted to put some, uh, to sort of formalise your your objections. You, you were being a bit um, critical of the critics, saying mm. that there's, uh, I, I, and I think there's a couple of criticisms of this kind of thing, which you can see actually in as a sort of status power type behaviour. So I think, first of all, you've got the critics as sort of, st who are trying to status, uh, raise their own status as critics. Um who uh, need to have taste that diverges from the mainstream, right? They, they have to, because um, otherwise, if they've got the same taste as the general public, how are they adding value? Mm. So uh, you'll, uh, critics and the general public agree, actually, nearly all the time. If you look at kind of scores on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like that, there's a huge amount of disagreement. So where, do criti where can critics carve out their niche? I think it's it's saying that things that are that are really sort of inaccessible or difficult or pretentious are actually amazing mm. because they think they're things that most people won't bother with or will dislike or will be turned off by. So that's a really good place. If, you, if you're a critic, it's really good to jump in there with the things that um, that, uh, you know, actually other people won't want to waste time with and start claiming that those things are amazing. So that's a cynical interpretation of, you know, they're having what they're having to do is differentiate themselves and they're finding the easiest things to differentiate themselves with. Um, and, you know, and that's sort of things that are sort of bland and popular or things that are massively complicated, like Ulysses. Um, the other thing is that is to see it not as actually as about critics, but as about insiders and outsiders. Mm. And, and I think, you know, it, being inside something is nice. Being in a kind of culture or subculture is nice. If you're in that subculture, you actively want to keep people out. Mm. If you're um, if you're an outsider, you actively want to get in, right? So there's a there's a battle there about who belongs in a thing. You know, is is Loive jazz? Jazz people are like, no, we don't want that. She's got way too many fans. Uh, that will that will make jazz less of a good subculture because it'll be too many people who like jazz in inverted commas. Um, whereas the people on the outside are like, no, we, we've got this really good thing. We want to get into the jazz gang because mm. the jazz gang is cool and we want to get in. So you can see that as a kind of battle between insiders and outsiders. Yeah, it'd be um, like, hey, I love jazz FM. Let me yeah. in. 
right? So, uh, exactly. Um, so, anyway, uh, I, but I just want, I want to put the case uh, before we wind up that gate, gatekeeping is actually really good and important. Why? So, I think something should be hard. Something should be inaccessible. You're an elitist. Um, I am. Yes, and I, I think you can see that that the I think the battle lines will be remarkably. If you were to look at the sort of elitist versus populist, the kind of metropolitan versus rural, or the sort of Republican versus Democrat, or the progressives versus conservatives, you'd find the same sorts of opinions about uh, inaccessible art. You would tend to find that they would people who like they Thomas Kincaid. Nicely, wouldn't they? I reckon Thomas Kincaid fans much more likely to be Republican. I want to find out more about this Thomas Kincaid. Well, I, I'm just so yeah. you know. So he, so he I, is he is a he is a very strong Christian, isn't he? Oh, I, I think so. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, so it, oh. I mean, that is no, not surprising to me at all. That yeah, makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, but but it, the thing is that things do get ruined when they're popular, right? Things do get ruined when they're popular. I'm sorry, but popular influxes of people ruin things. And I, mm. and I, the um, uh, give you an example: Mount Everest. <clears throat> And also, a lot of people online say thrifting, which is what oh, I think do they? Is, yeah, going to like thrift, oh, thrift charity shops. And yeah, apparently now that's that's kind of became a, become a big thing because of Instagram and stuff. And now, of course, you can't get that ruins it for me awful, and my beautifully eccentric. But that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a sort of limited, isn't cuts. it? In the con in the context of a limited resource, right? There's only so many secondhand but clothes so, so or think, so much space on Everest. So there's this interesting. Um, a uh, really interesting article co uh, called um, uh, Geeks, Mops and Sociopaths uh, by a guy called David Chapman, which analyzes the progression of subcultures. And he says, you, bef before you've got a subculture, you have a scene, which is just creators. They create cultural capital. That then draws fanatics, people who want to put energy in to support those creators. And they make social capital, right? They, they connect those creators to other fanatics. And they're all geeks so far, right? They're all people who are really into that subculture. And then it either stays geeky or mops arrive. What are mops? Members of the public. Mops, right? Good they're not as geeky. They no. want to enjoy the uh, subculture. They contribute very little, but they're needed to turn the scene into a subculture. Now you've suddenly got a vibe going. The problem is then you have too many. They mm. dilute the culture. They don't appreciate how complex or weird it is, and they want to start simplifying it and making it more accessible. And finally, the sociopaths turn up, and they're the people who actually monetize it. They work out to turn this thing into liquid capital, and then it's, you know, um, as Danny says in, in uh, With Nell and I, they're, they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. Yeah. You know, so so uh, I think subcultures are worth protecting, you know, and, and they do get ruined. There's no doubt about it. So, yes, I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, there's a role for gatekeepers. It's you always used negatively, but I think gatekeeping is good. And anyone who's been in a subculture, which who's, who's seen it be ruined. I'll give you an example. I, I went to a wargaming conference recently and there were some people there who were sort of saying wargaming's, you know, inaccessible. It's not, it, it's too esoteric and you've got all these kind of this weird lingo and all that and you should make it more accessible. And I thought, well, wh why do you want to access it if you don't like any of the things that are hard or inaccessible yeah. about it? It's like you want to get in there because there's something about it which is kind of interesting and cliquey and, but you don't want to put in the hard work of learning about the actual culture. So, you know, if you suddenly throw open the doors and say, well, now everyone's, now what's happened to Wargames yeah. ruined? Sorry about that. I probably, I, probably won't come, I probably won't come along to the next conference now. To replace so, our but... little cardboard counter 
counters with NATO symbols on with, you know, plastic models of soldiers and stuff. Yeah, it sounds be much ruined. better. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, anyway, there you go. We've got to stop there. Um, but super, super quick question for super, super quick answers from you lot, obviously not from me, um, which is, um, have you got a bit, a bit of art, um, uh, whether it be music, film, whatever, you know, or actual art, um, which you can't decide. Is it good or is it bad? What, where you are genuinely undecided whether it's brilliant or not? Because I've got one, which is Terence Malick, okay? Arguably a genius film director, but there's one film that he did, and I do love um, The Thin Red Line mm. that he did, um, although I did see people walking out of the cinema. Not that. Tree of Life. My, my son hated it. Tree of Life, I remember watching that, and I think one critic, um, I think actually I saw a critic saying he couldn't decide, and the crit a critic called it a sort of a three-hour perfume advert, um, is I watched it, and at the end of that film, I honestly couldn't decide, was that genius or was that just a load of old tut? You know? A load of old turk. Right, think. there we go. It was a load of old turk. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else from anyone? Yeah. That's yeah. so funny because uh, when you were saying that, I was thinking of that of that very film as not something I, th something that was sort of critically, you know, uh, well regarded that was patently terrible. Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else, anyone? Yeah. I think for me, the music of Kanye West. I, I can't decide. Is he? I, people say he's a musical genius and all this stuff. And then I listen. I'm like, I don't. He kind of sounds crazy. And but do you think he might be? Not smoking he what be. he's rolling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I just. It's one of those ones where I'm not sure if he is or not. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. Can't it feels like it fits. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well. So uh, my. I think one of my favorite films, possibly my favorite film, about the last three years is uh, Mandy. With Nicolas Cage. Oh, I've not seen it. Uh, Nicholas Cosmides, I think the director. Um, Cosmatides, something like that. Yeah. It is incredible. I hadn't seen a film like it. And it was just like, I watched it. I thought, thank God people are still making stuff like this. Um, and then I had this horrible feeling that it might be actually accessible and popular. <gasps> um, but then luckily I checked it out. And it turns out it's still a bit of a niche thing. Like Phew. a lot of people don't like it at all so i was like few after this case, millions in, will in that watch case, it I like yeah. it on the in podcast. that case i like it now because i know it's not yeah. a kind of you know it's yeah. not it's not accessible enough for yeah. it to be really popular yeah. so no but i can carry on liking it with my head held high few few uh thin red line in another as you say uh, you know terence malick film um uh i i did walk out uh in the middle of it uh but then i watched it again and I'm because I was like, I I should probably. It it sounds like the kind of film I should like, and I'm I'm I'm, yeah, un, undecided on. It's a very long film, I think, and there's a lot of. I think any film where there's lots of monologue and introspection. Always borders on the pretentious. Oh, yeah. good. Well, if it keeps out the likes of Chris and you, <laughs> then I'm on board. Yeah, I like go it. And, go and watch it. Yeah. Well, spend four hours of your life. I've seen um, it. I saw yeah. it at the cinema. Yeah. Well, well. Okay. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. I've been here with Jordan Fermanis, Nick Hare, and Chris Ragg of Aleph. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.